What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden, and today, coming to you guys with plenty of content, there is all sorts of things we're getting to today. Um, You know, Olympics are underway, you know, Tom Brady's retired, crazy things are going on, so uh, we'll get right into it today, as always. You can follow the Twitter and Facebook page. You can uh, listen on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, Before we get going, I would just like to extend a thank you to um, Evan Greasing for coming on the pod last week on Guest Friday. That was a really fun, great conversation. Hope uh, you folks enjoyed it. Um, As I said on Twitter and on Facebook, there is a special announcement as to who will join me this week. Uh, None other than my older brother, Tyler, who will join the show uh, this week as we will talk about the Celtics and the trade deadline. So hopefully uh, the deadline will have passed by the time that we speak and we will be talking about maybe the moves that they did or didn't make um, and taking a look ahead for the rest of the season. So I am uh, really looking forward to that conversation. Um, So you can catch that this week on Guest Friday. should be out at some point Friday afternoon. So let's get into it. Uh, we're going to start with the Patriots, believe it or not, with uh, the offseason. You know, kind of, it, the offseason kind of began. Um, obviously, Mac Jones played in the Pro Bowl yesterday. I don't know if any of you caught that. Uh, Pro Bowl is not really something that is of interest to me, but did see that uh, Mac Jones played and uh, played fairly well. Had a uh, touchdown run that was called back where he uh, hit the gritty, so that was pretty funny. Um, but AFC won 41-35, so the offseason is, um, you know, kind of started with the Patriots, but that is not where we're going to start today. Um, I totally, probably threw you guys, sorry about that. Um, but where we're going to start today is uh, Tom Brady. So obviously uh, the news uh, about a week ago, um, you know, on Sunday that, the report that came out that, you know, ultimately was, you know, ultimately was kind of put to bed that, okay, he's not retiring. Um, but then we get the official announcement uh, last week. So, you know, obviously there were a lot of emotions going around. You know, I think that um, just me from a personal standpoint, you know, getting to see him perform throughout my life has been, you know, nothing short than just amazing. You know, I think um, there are very few athletes, I think, that, you know, affect people in their lifetime. And I think, you know, as I tweeted um, when he retired, um, I think that a lot of us look to sport as a way to, you know, unwind and get away from, you know, the stuff going on in our lives that, you know, can be stressful. And I just think the ability that we had to be able to, you know, turn and turn, turn on the TV and watch, you know, one of the greatest football players, probably the greatest football player ever. Um, and, you know, have the ability to watch him for 20 years and watch the majority of his career. I just think we're so lucky, you know, we're really lucky, you know, not only, you know, all the Super Bowl wins, all the accomplishments, all of that, but just being able to you know, see someone perform at such a high level for such a long time. Um, I do think that, I think a lot of us don't really realize how lucky we are, you know, in terms of being able to watch his career and, 
you know, watch all the, all the joy that he brought us for years, you know, six Super Bowls, you know, it's, um, sometimes it just doesn't even feel real. Um, you know, all the, all the games, all the moments, you know, all the just mind boggling stuff that, you know, Tom was able to accomplish. I mean, who, who comes back from 28 to three in a Super Bowl, you know, who is able to play through, uh, a horrific, you know, cut on his hand to be able to win a game. Like, it just is, is unbelievable when you look back and, and marvel at, at some of the things that he did. Um, but I just think, you know, getting back to the, the, you know, being able to watch him during, during our lifetimes, you know, it's just, we're not going to realize how lucky we are, you know, for quite a while that, you know, we were able to watch and marvel at one of the greatest athletes ever. You know, it's the same way that people reminisce about watching Muhammad Ali or, you know, watching Michael Jordan in his prime or watching Wayne Gretzky in his prime, you know, or being able to say that, hey, I saw, you know, Babe Ruth hit a home run or something like that, that you were able to be, you know, in the presence of such an amazing athlete. And it's funny because, you know, Evan and I talked about this on Guest Friday on Friday that, you know, we were lucky to watch David Ortiz, you know, perform the way that he did. And there are definitely a lot of parallels between Tom and David Ortiz, just, you know, in terms of what they were able to do when it mattered most, you know, and I think um, it's definitely, you know, an emotional time for for a lot of us, you know, that we're able to, to watch Tom and, you know, think that we were going to watch him play until he was 50 years old, you know, really did not seem that, that far out, but, you know, obviously Tom's decision is Tom's decision, you know, and I think that I respect it, you know, and we all should, you know, I think he probably realized that he was very lucky to, to do this for so long and be able to do it at such a high level, but I think you know, at a certain, at a certain point, there's time that you have to spend with your family. And I think that ultimately, you know, probably is what the deciding factor was, you know, I don't really want to get into, you know, this is why he walked away or whatever. But, you know, I could, I could kind of tell something was up. So um, and I may have talked about this last week. Um, but after the NFC divisional game in which the Rams beat the Buccaneers, the way that Tom was talking to, to Eric Weddle, um, who had been in retirement and had come out of retirement to play for the Rams because of some injury issues that they had, um, and just the way that they were talking to each other, it kind of occurred to me that, you know, there's probably a conversation about retirement going on, and, you know, Eric probably talking to Tom about what it's like to be retired now. I'm just speculating. I don't know what that conversation was about, but it just, you could tell in the body language that, you know, maybe Tom did kind of have an idea that, that he was done. So, um, just a tremendous career. I mean, there's really nothing else you could say, but just feel lucky that you were able to witness such an unbelievable career that probably is never going to be duplicated. You know, obviously there are going to be amazing players in the NFL in the next 20, 30 years. You know, we're already seeing great careers of, someone like Patrick Mahomes or someone like Joe Burrow. Um, but it's just like no one will be able to come from being a sixth-round draft pick to being the greatest quarterback and possibly the greatest football player ever. You know, it's just an amazing, amazing journey. So I think, you know, it's just unbelievable to sit here and be talking about Tom's retirement 
you know, I think a lot of us didn't think that this time was going to come, but, you know, here it is, you know, it's uh, having to move on. It's going to be wild to, you know, turn on the TV in July and, you know, watch the news about training camps and not see Tom's face. You know, it's going to be uh, definitely an adjustment for, for, for all of us. Um, you know, and I just did also want to address that there was, you know, obviously there were some people that were um, maybe upset with the way that Tom, you know, made the announcement on Instagram, you know, and not mentioning the Patriots. You know, I wanted to clear the air and say that, you know, I'm not someone who's like, you know, I cared about Tom and I cared about him immensely and cared about, you know, what he meant to, you know, me as a fan and just meant to me as a person, you know, um, then I just think, you know, wasn't trying to be anything, you know, negative, but I just did feel, you know, and this is my own opinion that I felt like, you know, Tom said the thank yous and did all the, you know, teary eye posts when he left New England and, you know, that was his way of, of thanking the people that made his time in Tampa, you know, so special. But I just, I didn't think it was, you know, anything intentional that Tom, you know, tried to, to stiff the fans and, you know, act like, or have people think that he didn't care about the fans. You know, it just is kind of, um, I really don't want to get into it, but I just, I don't know. I think that there are some people that are always looking for ways to get angry about something. Um, and that's really all it is. You know, Tom, I think, will have so many opportunities to, you know, thank, thank the fans, thank the organization, thank Bill Belichick. You know, he will have his number retired. He will go into the Patriots Hall of Fame. You know, he will go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know, there will be plenty of opportunities for him to, you know, really give a full thanks. And it's not like he ever has, you know, never said that he's not enjoyed his time in New England because he has. And he said that plenty of times, you know, he said it in October when the Patriots played the Bucks. you know, that he anticipates that he'll be back here and be around here, you know, and it just is like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand why some people feel, felt the need that they deserved that, you know, gratification from Tom when it's like, he's already kind of said it, you know, but it, it, it is what it is, you know, and I think at, at the end of the day, I think we should just enjoy the fact that we were able to witness Tom's career and not, you know, get needlessly upset in an Instagram post. Um, but I just think, again, we're, we're so lucky. We're really lucky as, as sports fans and, you know, as people um, to just be able to witness somebody, you know, at the top of their craft, do it for, do it for so long. So, um, you know, it's just a matter of time before Tom's into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's, you know, a little unfortunate that we got to wait a couple of years. But, um, you know, you look at the the accomplishments. You know, it's 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 almost unbelievable. You look at you look at all these things. Fifteen times selected to the Pro Bowl, three times an All Pro, three times an MVP, seven times Super Bowl champ, five five times Super Bowl MVP. Um, you know, it's. Uh, pretty incredible, you know, and then obviously the 2007 season, which was, you know, probably the greatest season of all time, um, and even the season he had this year, you know, over 5,000 yards and over 40 touchdowns, you know, as a 44-year-old, 40, <laughs> you know, leading the league in these categories and, you know, being able to say that he went out on top, he went out, you know, at the top, maybe 
I mean, I don't know. I it, it debatable about whether it's the top of his game or the top of his ability, but I think, you know, not not going out when he said he sucked. You know that that quote that he said that I retire when he sucks, and you know, obviously, he didn't suck this year. You know, may as well win the MVP. It's very possible, um, but I just think it made sense to to start today. You know, talking about Tom's career and how much he meant to. So many of us, you know, and, and me personally, you know, I think that Tom was a big reason why sports was such a uh, big thing for me growing up. You know, I remember however, however young I was, six or seven, you know, when they won the first Super Bowl and it just was like, holy cow, I love sports. You know, it just, it stuck with me at an early age and, you know, <laughs> it's pretty unbelievable. Here I am at, at 26 years old talking about his career and you know, saying that I saw one of the greatest athletes to ever perform, you know, being able to see some of the greatest football games of, of all time, um, you know, thanks to his career and thanks to being a, a fan of the Patriots. So um, obviously there's going to be plenty more said about, about Tom's career and, you know, there'll be plenty of, plenty of uh, things that we'll be able to, you know, see Tom do, you know, I don't know when that number will get retired, you know, it will at some point, you know, I don't think they're going to be allowing anyone to wear that number, but, um, you know, he'll get into the Patriots Hall of Fame. I'm not sure if they might, you know, change the rules a little bit so they can honor him a lot quicker than some of the other guys, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. So, uh, again, you know, just a tremendous career and we all should feel lucky for being able to, to witness Tom's career. Um, so I think, that being said, we'll move on to some more Patriots stuff. Um, obviously, nothing set in stone about the Patriots and their um, new offensive coordinator, Josh McDaniels, obviously taking the Vegas Raiders job. Uh, there's been some conversation um, about Bill O'Brien and about Adam Gase um, in terms of both either of them taking over the offensive coordinator position um, that's, you know, open. So, you know, obviously, we've talked about Bill O'Brien and talked about the, the past that he's had here in New England, you know, did do, you know, did oversee some really good offenses um, in New England, you know, the 2011 season, um, which I believe was the year the Patriots lost to the Giants the second time. Um, you look at some of the numbers that they had, you know, third, third in points on offense, um, you know, second in yards. So this is all from 2011, uh, the last time he was the Patriots offensive coordinator. Um, you know, passing offense, second in passing yards, fourth in touchdowns, third in passing attempts. So this was, you know, uh, ranks ranks uh, compared to like the rest of the NFL teams. So you know, when I say second second in the NFL in you know passing yards, you know, fourth in touchdowns. Um, so I think, you know, clearly the, the track record is there that, you know, Bill can be a successful coordinator, you know, if that does end up happening, I think that there are some reports that, you know, a return is mutual, you know, that both the Patriots and Bill Belichick, <laughs> Bill Belichick and Bill O'Brien uh, would be interested in, in a reunion. And I think certainly it would be the best hire, you know, I think, um, just being someone that's had experience, not only being the offensive coordinator, but just having the experience of being in the Patriots 
organization, you know, and being around their their offensive system. Now, obviously, it's not the same offense. You know, you don't have the same players. You don't have, you know, Gronk and, you know, Wes Welker at the top of their abilities. You know, you have some work to do with some of the guys. But I think that, you know, it's all about the adjustment period. And I think if you bring in someone like Bill O'Brien, or if you even bring in someone that has experience with the team and with the offense, the adjustment period probably is not going to be as long as it would be if the Patriots brought in Adam Gase or someone that is brand new to the organization. I just think with Mac Jones and him as a developing quarterback, you want to have him be in an offense that's not going to be a lot different than the offense he was in last season. Um, You know, not saying that if Adam Gase comes in, he's going to throw a whole new offense at him. You know, I don't think that the Patriots are going to throw something like that at him. But I think Bill O'Brien's experienced in this offense. He's experienced in the Alabama offense as he was the offensive coordinator there this past season. So, you know, they have some familiarity with each other. So I think, you know, it seems like Bill O'Brien is kind of the obvious choice um, to be the offensive coordinator. Um, You know, just taking a quick look at Gase, obviously, he has some connections to Nick Saban and uh, Peyton Manning as he was the offensive coordinator uh, for both of his years in Denver. You know, obviously, 2013, they, you know, set the world on fire uh, with an unbelievable passing offense. And I believe Peyton Manning set the record for, uh, at the time, the most touchdowns in a season. Um, And I think... You know, obviously, we all know him as the head coach of the Jets, you know, and what a kind of a colossal failure that was. But, um, you know, he's got a decent track record as an offensive coordinator. And I think not to say that he is the perfect guy to hire, but I think, you know, when most people think of him, they think of him as the head coach and they think, okay, he was in over his head. But, you know, offensive coordinator, the year with Peyton Manning kind of speaks for itself. So I think you know, is this the ideal hire? No. Would it be the end of the world if they hired Adam Gase? Probably not, you know, but I think the Patriots need to kind of do everything they can to bring in Bill O'Brien. But I don't think that Gase is a terrible coach. You know, obviously his head coaching record suggests that, but I think him in a different role as an offensive coordinator is much different than him being the head coach and being, you know, someone that has to kind of I don't want to say control the locker room, but be someone that commands respect. And I just think, like, no, no disrespect to him, but I think that um, he didn't, he doesn't really have, or I don't know, I don't really see him as a head coach. Like, I think that he's someone that could be a very good offensive coordinator for years in this league. But um, you know, I don't know. the The experiment of him as a head coach hasn't really worked anywhere. So I think. You know, again, it's not the worst thing in the world if they hired Adam Gase, but I think, you know, Bill O'Brien, you look at the familiarity he has, not only with the Patriots, but with the Alabama offense, it makes a lot of sense for the Patriots to bring him in. So uh, we will see, you know, what ends up happening. I mean, I think, again, with the adjustment period, I think you want to bring in the coordinator as soon as you can, you know, so Mac Jones can get the chance to work with the coach um, and be able to go over things. And I think, you know, once they hit training camp, they can kind of hit the ground running. Um, you know, not that the Patriots are going to drag their feet, you know, and take their time with this decision. I don't think that they're going to, but I think, yeah, you know, get someone that can get Mac acclimated to 
whatever new things they're going to try to do. You know, obviously they're not going to be running the same exact offense. Like obviously there are going to be things that change. You know, we all know about Bill O'Brien and the years that he was here and how good the tight ends were, Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. You know, when you look at the tight ends the Patriots have on this roster, is there a possibility they could turn to something like that? Um, because I think, you know, they really need to get Johnny Smith more involved with the offense. And then I'll be curious to see, you know, what the Patriots do with the receiver position, because I think they do need to upgrade, whether that's through the draft, whether that's through, through free agency. Um, I'll be curious to see. I don't see that they're going to make a, a big splash and spend a lot of money to get Allen Robinson or Chris Godwin or Devontae Adams. Like, I don't think they're going to go that route, but I think just getting depth at the receiver position is the most important thing that they can do for this offense. So be curious to see, you know, who they bring in and what type of offense they're going to run. So uh, speaking of the Patriots, um, the senior bowl was this past weekend. And obviously the Patriots are, are well known for uh, drafting players that have participated in the senior bowl. Um, Mac Jones obviously per- played in it last year. Uh, Kyle Duggar had played in it the year before. So just looking at some prospects, um, wide receiver Christian Watson from North Dakota State um, is has been highlighted by uh, Phil Perry as um, a potential fit in the offense. So I'll just read you guys what he wrote. So for... I just want to make sure that I get this right because I just have a feeling that uh, maybe I'm misquoting who it is, but no, it is Phil Perry. Just wanted to get that out of the way in case I, you know, accidentally refer to someone that didn't write the article. So here's what uh, Phil Perry says about Christian Watson from North Dakota State. Um, This would be an X receiver for the Patriots. He's played in the kicking game. We know the Patriots like that. A toughness that can indicate the athleticism that it takes to play as a returner. He's averaged over 20 yards per catch at North Dakota State. He was clocked at 21 miles per hour this week in Mobile, where the Senior Bowl was. So he has speed. A little thin for someone who's six foot four, just over 200 pounds. But if they're looking for that field stretcher type, someone who can do some damage after the catch, as well based on what he's done in the kicking game and the track record that he has there, that's someone the Patriots should keep, be keeping their eye on. So I think. You know, this definitely sounds like someone the Patriots should be looking after. You know, someone who's quick after the catch. Um, And, you know, that's really the biggest thing. I mean, I think for the Patriots to be able to have a receiver that does damage after the catch, I think is the most important thing. Um, And then uh, he wrote a piece about Chad Muma, the linebacker from Wyoming. So here's what Phil Perry says. Uh, Six foot two, 241 pounds. I think that's big enough for the Patriots, especially for a rookie. They may try to add to somebody like that, try to make them a little closer to that 250 range, but that's big enough for us to to at least be tracking. One of the best off-the-ball off linebackers in the draft class this year, one of the best linebackers at the Senior Bowl. I mean, that, like, that to me screams Patriot and screams, you know, someone that could be potentially picked um, in the first or second round. I think the Patriots are going to seriously be looking at that linebacker position, you know, as a way to kind of pass the torch from, you know, Hightower and that linebacker group to kind of a new school of 
linebacker, you know, someone that can be quick, have that sideline to sideline speed, um, and maybe even be someone that can be used in coverage. So I'm curious to see uh, what the Patriots think about Chad Muma. I would expect that he's uh, a name that you see pop up around the draft. Um, and then he said also something about Roger McCreary, the cornerback from Auburn. So here's what Phil Perry has to say. Undersized guy, very short arms. There's sort of been the buzz on McCre that's sort of been the buzz on McCreary this week, but all kinds of speed real and really strong ability to transition, which I know personally from talking to the Patriots and their coaches over the years is something that they value very highly. So even if you blow the 40 yard dash the way Malcolm Butler did, that's okay in their eyes. I don't know if he's ever going to get to number 21 because I think he's one of the best corners in this year's draft, but that's a player we should be watching in Mobile this weekend. So, um, you know, I think as Phil Perry says, he may not be there at 21, um, but I think it's worthwhile to just kind of keep tabs on someone like that if he does drop. Um, you know, McCreary's a pretty good player. I think uh, if the Patriots do want to kind of load up at that cornerback spot, depending on what happens with J.C. Jackson, I mean, I think if he's sitting there at 21, you're not, uh, you, you are not hesitating. Um, I think he's someone that you definitely uh, should take there. So um, those are just some Patriot notes. You know, obviously we'll keep you updated as the off season kind of rolls into rolls into gear, you know, with, uh, you know, hiring coaches, free agency, and then you got the draft. So we'll certainly be keeping you guys updated there. So uh, with that being said, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about the Bruins. Obviously, there's not too much to talk about Bruins. Uh, just played one game last week against Seattle. That was their final game before the All-Star break. Bruins won 3-2. Uh, Pasternak with a couple goals of the Bruins. Went into the uh, All-Star break, you know, feeling a little bit of confidence, you know, having the, the great month of January. But I think, you know, as I said last week, they've had some losses and they've had some games that so they haven't played well. So I think, you know, trying to get a reset. So I'm curious to see, you know, how they're going to come out against Pittsburgh tomorrow. Uh, they got Pittsburgh and Carolina at the Garden this week to tomorrow and then Thursday. And then they will travel to Ottawa on Saturday to play the Senators. And that will be a start of a three or four game road swing um, to Canada and to New York. Bruins will play the Islanders and the Rangers next week. So um, just kind of looking ahead, you know, I think the Bruins are in a pretty good spot. You know, I think uh, really had a, a solid performance against Seattle. You know, I don't think it was perfect, but, you know, I think getting a win, getting into the break was good. So. You know, the Bruins come out of this break playing some pretty good teams. So I'll be very, I'll be very curious to see how they match up against Pittsburgh and against Carolina, both teams that have been playing really well recently. Um, I did see, though, that Evgeny Malkin for the Penguins will not, will not play tomorrow as he uh, tested positive for COVID. It seems like the Bruins will be at full strength uh, once they return. Eric Hall obviously went into the COVID protocols prior to the game against Dallas, but obviously it's been more than five days, so we should be able to return um, in tomorrow's game. So um, obviously we'll, we'll see how the Bruins do. You know, I think uh, tough teams coming up, but I think you have to kind of get back to what was so effective, you know, in January. I think limiting the turnovers, especially in the neutral zone, I think playing, you know, cleaning things up in the defensive zone. I think that 
Uh, the Bruins had some issues with that, especially in Colorado um, and in Arizona. Obviously, they won one, lost the other. But, you know, I think I think with this team, it kind of starts in the defensive end. And I think being smart with the puck and being smart with your, you know, how you're starting, how you're starting the rush and not, you know, making the hard play, making the easy play. And I think that's kind of what the Bruins need to get back to. Um, I think the rest will, I think will have been good for a lot of guys, especially Marshan. You know, I think he was a guy definitely hurting after the um, hard hit he took from Garnet Hathaway a couple weeks ago. So I think the rest will do him some good. Um, so I think there has been some conversation, especially over the All-Star weekend, um, about the Bruins and their need for a second-line center. You know, and I kind of talked about this last week that, you know, without someone like Halla, you have to throw, you know, no second to that second or third, second or third-line center. And obviously that's not sustainable, you know. That's not something that the Bruins can do. And I think it really kind of underscores the need for that second-line center now. Are there other needs that the Bruins have? Certainly, but I think this is the biggest need that they have. And I think um, taking a look at some of these guys for that role uh, makes sense. I think just with not a lot of Bruins game to analyze this week. Um, so we'll take a look at a couple of these guys. Uh, JT Miller is, to me, in my opinion, is kind of the top, um, the top guy that the Bruins should be looking after. You know, I think he's someone that not only is under contract for this year, but is under contract for next year, too. Um, and I think, you know, he's someone that's proven himself over the last few years, um, bounced around a little bit in Tampa Bay and New York, but having a really good season again, you know, point-per-game player this season, uh, was nearly a point-per-game player last season, and was over a point-per-game player for Vancouver in 1920. Uh, so he's had a really good run. Over his last two years, over his last few years in Vancouver, obviously uh, had some good runs in Tampa Bay and New York, um, and is a pretty good playoff performer. So I think he's someone that should be at the top of the list because I think as much as you want to go all in and get the best talent you can, and some people would say maybe that's Claude Giroux or uh, Joe Pavelski, which we'll look at in a second. But I think. The best case scenario is the Bruins can bring in someone to, you know, help this season, but also be around the next season after, you know, so that you can make a decision whether you want this player to be a part of the, the next wave of the team, you know, or not. And I think, you know, making the money that JT Miller's making is, is pretty good. You know, I think uh, he's on a pretty good contract. So the Bruins should be able to make this type of trade. I mean, I think the only issue is, what are other teams going to offer? You know, other teams that need a second-line center, you know, or are looking to load up, they may be in a better position asset-wise than the Bruins are. But I think, you know, the Bruins can put together something solid, I think, for a player like this. And, um, you know, I think it might make sense, you know, two birds with one stone. You throw in Jake DeBrusque into this kind of deal so that you can, you know, resolve the situation with him, but you can also, you know, get a second-line center. So I think... JT Miller definitely is on, on top of my list. Um, another player, Thomas Hurdle, is someone that I've been talking about also from the uh, from the Sharks. You know, both of these teams, the Sharks and the Canucks, are kind of, you know, somewhere in the middle in terms of playoff contending. You know, I think 
San Jose probably wants to see how mu- how much further they can go, you know, because the trade deadline is not for another month plus. So I think they might be curious to see where they are at that point. Um, and obviously, if they're far back in the standings, they may be more willing to, to trade. Um, Hurdle, I think, would be a good addition, you know, making the same amount as uh, JT Miller is. He's a little bit older. Um, he's not as much of a natural center. Um, not really that that matters. He does have a no trade clause, and this would be a rental because he's not signed through next season. Um, so I think this would be a type of move that you're doing to say, you know, F it, we're going to go all in. We're going to try to win a championship, and if we come up short, then it's a failure. You know, not exactly a failure, but, like, he's not someone that's going to stick around past this season, and that's kind of the the theme with most of these guys that I don't think they're really going to be sticking around Boston. So that's why I think, you know, Hurdle to me, or uh, Miller to me is the, is the best fit. Um, it would definitely take a pretty serious package from the Bruins to get Hurdle to Boston. Um, also as David Pasternak's, you know, countryman. So, you know, that might be something to look into too. So, you know, Hurdle, just based on his age, is probably number two for me. Number three, um, in terms of kind of ranking these guys, Joe Pavelski is probably the third. Um, you know, he's a little bit on the older side. You know, he's making a pretty good amount of money. He's only signed through this season, um, but obviously has a very good track record has been very good in Dallas um, over a point per game this season, was uh, just under a point per game last season, was really good in the playoffs the year that they made the run to the Stanley Cup final, and then obviously had some great years in San Jose. Um, So I think Pavelski and Claude Giroux, I think if you want to lump both of them in, they're both guys that are on the older side, um, and I think would be great fits. um, But I think I'll just be honest about Giroux. I don't think that the Flyers are going to trade him to the Bruins. Um, I just think uh, if you're Philadelphia, that's not going to go over well with your fans if you're going to sell your you know, most popular player and your captain to the Boston Bruins. Um, as much as he would be a great fit in Boston, I'm not disputing that. I just don't know how possible that that's going to be because I think, A, you know, the Flyers are not trading him to a rival. B, you know, he's making a lot of money, so you would have to trade a good amount of salary to go back. Um, And then I think, you know, number three, he's a rental, and you have probably no control on him after this season. Um, And I think it would just kind of be a one-shot deal. Um, And same thing with Pavelski. You're bringing these guys in to try to win a cup this year. You're not really bringing them in for, for the future. So I think I wouldn't hate either of these guys on the Bruins. I think they'd be fantastic fits, um, especially on that second line. But I just think, you know, you may want to think about the future a little bit with this move. But that isn't to say that I wouldn't want either of these guys on the team. Absolutely. I mean, you saw what Joe Claude Giroux did in the All-Star game, and I know it's an All-Star game, but, you know, he still is a tremendous player, and same thing with Pavelski. Um, And then one last name I wanted to talk about quickly uh, was Paul Stastny plays for the Jets. That was a name that I saw floated out there a couple days ago um, as to someone that potentially could be, you know, fit. Now, I think 
he is kind of a little bit in between. You know, he is, you know, on the older side, you know, he's 36 years old, um, not making a lot of money. I don't think it would cost a lot of money to get him, um, but I just, I question how much, how much he really has left and how much, you know, he really would elevate the Bruins. You know, he's not topped 40 points in a season in the last three years, um, you know, as a decent player, but I think he would be kind of the lateral move. Like, if you're trying to win a Stanley Cup, getting Paul Stastny, I think, would be a move where it's like, you know, he's a fine player, he's a solid player, but I think at this point in his career, he's kind of more of a third-line center, you know, than a second-line center. And I think, like, if you bring him in, he's a lot similar to Halla and to Coyle, and it's just like, at that point, it's like, how much better are you really getting, um, you know, I think it wouldn't be a horrible consolation prize, but if I'm the Bruins, I'm going all in for Miller and Hurdle, you know, and I think as much as this is going to hurt to say, and I you know, said this to Nick a few weeks ago on Guest Friday, the Bruins probably are going to need to trade Jack Stitnika, and they're probably going to need to trade a first-round pick, and probably Jake DeBrusque, you know, this is a trade that you're going to have to really go all in. You know, you're going to have to do this move where, it might not be, you know, necessarily the smartest move, but I think that you have a core that is built to win right now and built to compete for a championship, that if you make a move for a JT Miller or a Tomas Hurdle or a Giroux or a Pavelski, you know, you are immediately becoming a title contender. Um, do the Bruins need to do more work than just a second line center? Absolutely. You know, I think they do need to add a little bit more in the decor, you know, maybe getting someone that can play with a little more physicality. But I think if you're getting JT Miller, if you're getting Tomas Hurdle, you know, you're getting an elite second line center. And I think, you know, has the ability to really elevate your team. And that's what the Bruins need to be looking at at this trade deadline. They need to be trying to elevate their team. So, you know, be curious to see, you know, obviously I'm not thinking we're seeing a trade in the next few weeks. You know, the trade deadline's not until the end of March. But I think, you know, looking at these guys for second line center, I think makes a lot of sense. You know, one of these five guys, I think the Bruins really need to be, you know, looking pretty hard after. Um, so I think um, we are going to move on, but I think first we're going to talk about the Bruins. Um, you know, looking at today's date, February 7th, the Bruins uh, five years ago uh, brought in Bruce Cassidy. So I thought it made sense to kind of talk about Bruce Cassidy and you know, five years in, here we are, you know, um, it was funny because, you know, in his uh, introductory press conference, you know, when he was named the, the interim head coach, you know, it was interesting. He, you know, said, said this line about, you know, he didn't want to come into the Bruins as like, like in an, as an interim coach, or he wasn't going to approach it as an interim coach. And I think, you know, he always has struck me as someone who I think people don't always agree with all the decisions that he makes and that's fine, you know, but I just think how kind of not open, but like the ability that he has to be willing to kind of, you know, say things for what they are, you know, and, you know, not to say that Claude Julian was, you know, a bad coach or, you know, someone that didn't really say a lot because, you know, that is true. I mean, he did keep to himself a lot, you know, kept things close to the chest and, um, 
I think that he did things his way and Bruce has done things his way. And I think, you know, both ways have worked. And I think um, it just is fascinating to me because, you know, he said, oh, that's what he said. He said, you know, he wants to, you know, approach the game and approach the guys um, or that you should approach the, the guys the same way you would if you have a one-year contract or if you have a five-year contract. And I just, that always stuck with me because it's so funny because here we are five years later and, you know, he's been here for five years and probably will be here for a lot longer. Um, but it just is so interesting how, you know, he said that phrase probably having no idea that he would be here five years from now and, you know, have the success that he's had. Um, and I think uh, it's been a, a seamless transition, you know, and that sounds wild. That probably would have sounded wild five years ago. You know, that people were like, oh, my God, you fire, you fire Claude, you bring in this guy who, you know, didn't really have any NHL coaching experience, you know, coached the Capitals, I think, in the early 2000s, obviously before Ovechkin came in. Um, but, you know, your AHL guy and being like, okay, you know, what are, what are we going to see from this guy, you know, um, because the, the pressure was pretty immense, you know, having to come in and, and replace a guy like Claude. But, you know, the Bruins obviously responded really well to that. If you remember, you know, four straight wins out of the decision, you know, they won like eight out of 10 or something and had a great run the rest of the season, you know, got to the playoffs, fell in the first round to a pretty talented Ottawa team. Um, but I think it's just funny to look at five years and how much, how, how successful the Bruins have been in that period, you know, winning a president's trophy, you know, getting a hundred points in a season, going to a Stanley cup final, you know, it's, uh, pretty remarkable the, the the things that he has done now is he perfect no absolutely not i think that he's made plenty of decisions that people you know don't exactly agree with but i think for the most part he's been really an excellent coach you know i think uh has been exactly what the bruins were hoping when they hired him five years ago so just crazy to think uh how much how much has changed since then um so i think that being said, I think we'll move on to talking about the Celtics. Um, and uh, don't look now, but the uh, Celtics are playing their best basketball this season. I might dare say that they this is the best basketball they've played since the bubble. <laughs> I do not remember the, the, the Celtics winning 12 out of 16 games last year. Um, it just kind of was a, a slog. But the Celtics have found something that's working, you know, uh, 12 wins in their past 16. They've won five in a row. They've won six out of seven or seven out of eight, whatever it is. Um, but I think it's uh, pretty tremendous what you've seen from this team. Um, now, has it been perfect? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you've had some games where um, some old habits have, have come in and they've lost some games. But, you know, really since Marcus Smart has returned from um, his thigh injury and, you know, COVID, the Celtics have uh, been a very good basketball team. I think especially when you look at the starting five of Tatum Brown, Smart Horford, and Rob Williams, defensively, they've been one of the best starting fives in the league. Um, you know, I think since the since the start of the new year, um, and it just is uh, so interesting because, you know, you really felt like the Celtics were never really able to, you know, get a consistent run of games together where their starting five was playing. You had guys out with COVID, guys out with injuries, and things like that. And so you felt like you never really f saw this group play consistently. Uh, you've been seeing this group play consistently 
and play at a really high level. Celtics are a season high, five games over 500 at 30 and 25. Um, it's just been it's just been great to watch the resurgence of this team and how well the starting fives played, um, and I think how well Marcus Smart has you know really embraced his role as more of a ball distributor, you know, and, you know, I think he's averaging close to career high um, in assists, averaging five and a half per game. Um, but the great thing is Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are also, you know, helping out in terms of the, you know, ball distribution, which is great. You know, it's a great sign that, you know, Ime Odoka obviously mentioned that, you know, in his introductory pr press conference that, you know, he wants to see the two of them become more playmakers now. Has it been consistent all season? No, but I think that it's interesting to see that it just seems like recently you've looked up at the the box score. Jason has five, six, seven assists. Um, and I just think uh, the, the lineup is working exactly the way that they wanted it to. You know, I think this is exactly the starting five playing the way that the Celtics envisioned, I think, from the start of the season. That you know, this is the group that they want to see, and they're playing great basketball, you know, especially defensively. It's uh, pretty remarkable. You know, you have Marcus Smart, who we know is elite defensively. We know Rob Williams, who's ascending into becoming one of the best defenders in the NBA. And then you have Al Horford, who, you know, quietly is quietly is a pretty good defensive player. Um, he's averaging uh, almost a block and a half per game. Um, and he's been really good defensively. And then obviously Jalen and Jason, pretty underrated defenders. So, you know, it's been challenging for other teams to get, you know, easy baskets on the Celtics. Now, offensively, it's a little bit of a different story. The Celtics, you know, have had their issues this season offensively. I think with kind of the lack of shooting around Jalen and Jason, um, that I think has kind of been a bit of a problem. Um, but I think you know, you're seeing a good Ime Udoka find a good rotation um, that's really been, has, has been really good recently. You know, you've had Grant Williams, Josh Richardson, you know, Schroeder coming off the bench, and they've been really, really good. Um, you know, obviously I've said my piece about, about Schroeder plenty of times, but um, he was knocking down a lot of shots last night. Celtics win by 33 against Orlando. Now, obviously... Orlando and Detroit, not exactly the cream of the crop of the league, but the Celtics did blow out the heat uh, last Monday, did have a good win against the Hornets on Wednesday. So, you know, you have this team playing the best basketball it's played this season. I think it's the best basketball they've played, you know, since, since the bubble. So, you know, someone like Richardson has been great off the bench. Grant Williams is knocking down threes at an unbelievable clip. I think he's near the maybe in the top 10 in, in three-point percentage in the NBA. Um, and he's been a great addition off the bench. Now, is the bench perfect? No. You know, I think the Celtics are, I think, trying to find, you know, good roles for some of the young guys, but it's kind of been a challenge for them. Um, and I think, you know, talking about the potential for, for trades this week, um, obviously we'll talk more about that on Guest Friday, but... I think that, you know, obviously Schroeder is kind of the name that will most likely be traded. You know, I think, is there a chance Josh Richardson could get traded? I think it's possible. Someone like Ennis Freedom, is that possible? I think so too. Uh, but I think that 
for the Celtics, I wouldn't expect them to do anything major. Um, I think there are some people on Twitter that get around deadline time and are like, oh my God, the Celtics need to make moves. And, you know, there's something to be said for trying to get under that luxury tax and give you more future flexibility. And I mean, the Celtics have been talking about that pretty much since the start of the season. So it's like, I don't think that they're going to be changing course anytime soon. Um, I still think Schroeder is going to get moved, but I don't think that they're going to be acquiring any type of like big talent um, because I think you want to maintain as much flexibility as you can. Um, and I'd also be curious to see, you know, some of the young guys, you know, if Schroeder does get traded, you know, what do you see more from Peyton Pritchard? Do Romeo Langford and Aaron Neesmith get more minutes? You know, I think you want to try to see what these young guys have. Uh, before you kind of make a decision on their future. Um, I don't think any of them are going to be traded at the deadline. You know, I think uh, you want to kind of see what they are. You know, I think as much as the Celtics have been playing really good basketball, basketball recently, you know, playing the best that they've played and, you know, looking like an elite defensive team, the Celtics still are in a spot where they're not exactly contenders. You know, and I think that, if you're a contender, you go in and you buy at the deadline and you try to make your team better so you can compete in the playoffs and possibly for a championship. The Celtics aren't there, you know, and I think that as much as they played great recently, and I think it's good to see, it's good for the future, the Celtics are not a contender. And I think that people might be misleading, or it might be this run might be misleading people into thinking that they are a really good team. And all they need to do is add and add at the trade deadline. But I think, you know, you want to be smart about the future. And I think, you know, the Celtics have said that this offseason is going to be about flexibility. And I just think as much as it's probably going to frustrate people, the Celtics probably aren't going to be doing anything major. Um, and I think people kind of need to be prepared for that. Um, and so I say this because I think the Celtics need to allow their younger players to develop further and see really what they are, you know, and I think if you are going into this deadline, you are adding pieces that can be shooters right now, you're not allowing the young guys to develop and possibly see what you have in them, you know, the Celtics can play them a lot and see what they have, and I just think that makes more sense to me than, you know, going big, swinging big at the trade deadline, you know, and trying to win this season, because it's just not going to happen. Um, and so I think ultimately if Schroeder does get traded, you see Pritchard play a lot more minutes. And I think that's more important to this team right now. Um, so obviously uh, Tatum is starting to shoot better. Uh, Rob Williams has really come into his own in terms of um, just being a, an elite defender. You know, it's uh, pretty remarkable to see the improvement in his game. Um, the Celtics, obviously, five straight wins are now even with Brooklyn in terms of the, in terms of games back in the division and in the conference. Um, the Celtics this week will travel and play the Nets on Tuesday, which will be quite an exciting game, might be the most important game of the season to this point. Uh, Celtics will play the Nets on TNT, and then the Celtics will play uh, the Nuggets at the Garden on Friday, and then they will play an afternoon game on Super Bowl Sunday against the Atlanta Hawks. So taking a quick look at the Eastern Conference standings, 
Um, I didn't take a look at the NHL standings just because the standings are pretty much the same as they were before the All-Star break. So um, with the NBA, the Celtics currently in the eighth spot, but they are in a virtual tie with the Raptors and the Brooklyn Nets um, for, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth place, all three of those teams even. Um, and the Celtics, you know, obviously uh, performing at a high level, point differential is at a pretty good, pretty good spot. Um, it's just remarkable to think, you know, and they talked about this on the uh, Celtics broadcast last night at NBC Boston. Um, the Celtics were eight and a half games behind the Nets um, before the new year, and the Celtics are even with them now. It's pretty remarkable. You know, Nets have lost eight in a row. Celtics have won five in a row. Uh, Toronto's also won five in a row, so things are getting very interesting there. Um, but it's a tremendous opportunity for the Celtics to, you know, get into a position where they are, you know, middling for a playoff spot and, you know, or middling for a spot in the playoffs versus the play-in. You know, I think it would be remarkable if the Celtics could avoid the play-in, you know, and be in that five or six seed. But it's it's within reach. You know, if you if the Celtics can make up eight and a half games in over a month, the Celtics could absolutely make up four and a half games um, the rest of the season. That's how many games they are out of first place in the East. And no, I'm not joking. They are literally four and a half games out of first place and just three games out of fifth place in the Eastern Conference. It's uh, pretty amazing. You know, the turnaround the Celtics have had, the road record needs to get a little bit better, but the Celtics have been very good at home, 18 and 10. It's one of the better uh, home records in the Eastern Conference. So a lot to watch for with this Nets game on Tuesday. Uh, Kyrie Irving obviously will not play because it's at home. James Harden uh, missed the last game. It's unclear whether he will play tomorrow. Uh, but definitely keep your eyes and ears open for that. Um, the Nets are not a very good home team, so the Celtics could up their road record with a win in Brooklyn. So that probably does it for the NBA. The Heat are still in first place in the East. Phoenix still in first in the West. So I think we will move on and talk about the uh, football game coming up this weekend. Uh, don't know if you guys have heard about it. It's uh, a, a pretty big game, pretty important game. You know, one team, you know, lifts a trophy and, and all that. <laughs> we do have a fantastic Super Bowl uh, that I think will be coming up this weekend on Sunday. Really looking forward to this game. So, yes, we're jumping in, talking about the Super Bowl. Uh, obviously, as the uh, game is now a week closer than last week, uh, we have the Bengals and the Rams from L.A., on Sunday at 6.30. I think this is going to be a tremendous game. Um, I think it's going to be really close. You know, as much as I think the Rams are favored in this game, I think currently they are favored by four and a half points in this game. Uh, according to ESPN's Football Power Index, they have a 66% chance to win. So two-thirds of a chance, that's pretty good. But the Bengals are going to make this a game. There's no way that that the Rams are going to run away with this game. You know, I think that both teams are evenly matched to a degree. I think that both of these offenses are very explosive, have the ability to, you know, change games with the players that they have. Obviously, Cincinnati with, with Chase, Boyd, and T. Higgins. You know, you got the Rams with OBJ and Cooper Cup. Uh, Van Jefferson might be a guy that ends up being a difference maker. 
the trenches is going to be what's what wins this game. I think that, you know, can Cincinnati find a way to limit Matt Stafford down the field? You know, can they find a way, find a way to limit, you know, the explosive plays the Rams can have down the field? Um, and then on the other hand, can the Bengals offensive line hold off the Rams defensive line? You know, as much as the uh, Bengals allowed Joe Burrow to get sacked nine times in the divisional round. They did a lot better against the Chiefs in the uh, AFC Championship. So I think if their offensive line can play like that, they have a very good chance to win. I think their chances to win involve keeping Joe Burrow upright. And I think if they do that, you know, it's going to be a shootout. And I think the, the Bengals can absolutely win this game. But I think it's the trench battle. It's going to come down to how the game or how the game is decided. You know, can the Rams get to Joe Burrow? Can they affect him? You know, obviously we know how strong Matthew Stafford can be against the Blitz. You know, he's been the number one passer in the league against the Blitz this year. So what do the Bengals do? You know, what do they do differently? Do they decide to roll the dice and Blitz him? Or do they decide to stay back in coverage? You know, and trust that secondary that's been put together uh, with some good free agent signings. Um but I think it's going to be the trenches, and it's probably going to be whatever defense makes a big play that's going to end up winning the game. Not necessarily that they make like a game-saving interception, but if there's a, a big interception or a big play that happens in the course of the game, I think it's whatever team makes that play that's going to win the game. Um, as much as I think the Rams have the talent and have the advantage um, in this game, I still think the Bengals are going to win. I just think that sometimes in sports and we all know we all know about this very well um, it's not always the most talented team that wins and oftentimes it's some stuff that you can't explain you know not saying that we're going to see a David Tyree type moment in this game but I think a lot of a lot of people would point to the Rams winning this game but I think the Bengals will Joe Burrow has been unbelievable uh, we're seeing one of the great uh, young quarterback playoff runs in NFL history right now with the games that he's put together. Um, and I think you see another one. I think you see Joe Burrow leading a game-winning drive late in the game. And uh, Evan McPherson is money late in the game. So uh, I like the Bengals in this game. I think we're going to see it's like 30-27. to 27. I think you're going to see a fairly high-scoring game. I think the over-under for this is uh, 48.5, which you know is pretty good. But I say uh, bet the over in this one. Uh, it's going to be a really good game. I'm really looking forward to this, but I like the Bengals. So we're going to bounce around with topics. Uh, we're going all over the map. We're going hockey. We're going soccer. We're going football. We're going all types of stuff here. So uh, NHL All-Star Game obviously was this weekend. It was a pretty fun event to watch. The uh, skills competition was, was fun, although there's some, you know, corruption going on, which, hey, can't have an all-star, all, you can't have all-star festivities with some type of uh, judge corruption. You know, if you've seen the slam dunk contest, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I know that, you know, a lot of people have their opinions on the all-star game and, you know, ESPN and all that, but it was a fun weekend. You know, it was fun to be able to see some of the players showing their, their personality, being able to do these wild events. Um, obviously, the shooting the whatever the event that they did on the fountain of the Bellagio that was pretty funny um 
it's always fun seeing fastest skater and see how fast those guys can move. You know, hardest shot is always wild. So um, Victor Hedman won hardest shot. Uh, Jordan Cairo won fastest skater. That was pretty impressive uh, how he was able to move. Sebastian Ajo won the uh, accuracy shooting. Uh, Patrice Bergeron did compete in that, which was fun to see. Um, then you had the All-Star game um, yes, uh, on Saturday, uh, which was fun. Claude Giroux obviously winning All-Star MVP. Just a fun weekend, a fun event. You know, I think that, again, people will say what they will about All-Star weekend, but I think it's always fun. So um, good exposure for the league on ESPN. You know, I think some personality you got to see in the uh, breakaway challenge. Trevor Zegers, you know, probably got robbed in that. But, um, you know, again, at the end of the day, I don't really think it matters who wins. I just think it's the moment that matters. You know, him going blindfolded dodgeball style and, you know, whipping that puck in is pretty amazing. Uh, I don't know about you, but I just thought the Jack Hughes thing was, was pretty funny too, as he did kind of this magic box routine where he, you know, taps a box and there's a, uh, a child that comes out mini Jack Hughes and, you know, scores on a, on a, on a spin move breakaway. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, but NHL, you know, they always do it, do it right with those type of events. So, uh, that was definitely fun, fun to check out. Um, you know, I have my own thoughts about the all-star rosters and, you know, changes, but it's always fun to, to, to see that game, see the three on three, um, tournament go on. So the, uh, Metro winning it. And uh, All-Star Weekend is in Florida next year. And the last little note, uh, obviously it's probably common knowledge by now, but uh, the Bruins were chosen to host the Winter Classic next year. It will be at Fenway Park New Year's Day. Curious to see who they're going to play. I think there are plenty of teams that the Bruins could play. I think Pittsburgh is a possibility. The Rangers. But I would love to see them play the Toronto Maple Leafs. I would love to see that. Uh, at Fenway Park New Year's Day. So I'd be curious to see uh, who they end up playing and when that is announced. Carolina also uh, getting a stadium series game that will be played at NC State uh, at some point, uh, probably next February. So I'd be curious to see. Um, there also, I believe, is an outdoor game coming up this month. Um, if I can find out when that is. Yeah, stadium series coming to uh, Nissan Stadium in Nashville. That is at the end of the month. The Lightning are playing the Predators, and then the Heritage Classic is on March 13th in Hamilton, Ontario, the Maple Leafs and the Sabres playing. So a couple outdoor games to look forward to. So um, be on the lookout that for that. So uh, before we go, uh, we've got some things that we do need to finish up on. Obviously, we talked about the Super Bowl, NHL All-Star Weekend, and then obviously the big news in the NFL, despite, uh, you know, Tom Brady's retirement and all that, there was, you know, unfortunate news of uh, Brian Flores' uh, lawsuit, which I'm sure that we all know, we, we all know about, um, and some of the things that he has been alleging against the teams that he um, believes he was not given a fair shot with, and I think... Uh, you know, this is something of an ugly truth in the NFL, and this is something that um, obviously will not go away. And I think that um, I just have to say the amount of guts on Brian Flores to come forward and say that, you know, he is basically willing to, you know, like have his career crash and burn. 
that he's willing to do this if there's some change. And I just think that tells you a lot about him as a person and his character. And I think that there are a lot of people, you know, that maybe don't think it, don't think that what he's saying is true, you know, specifically the, the ownerships of the three teams that he's talking about. But um, I don't think he's making this up. You know, I just think that I believe him. I believe that he is a man of his word and he's someone that takes these types of things seriously. And um, I don't know, you know, not that I could sense that there was something up, but I always thought there was something weird with why he was fired from the Dolphins, you know, considering how much success he'd had over the last two years, you know, having two winning seasons together for the first time in almost 20 years. Um, but it's um, obviously it's it's very concerning, but it's very real and it's very truthful you know, that oftentimes black coaches are not given, are not necessarily given the same opportunities as white candidates. And um, it's just unfortunate that, you know, some of these things have come out that, you know, a coach Bill Belichick, obviously believing that he was congratulating Coach Dable and actually texts, you know, Brian Flores. And, you know, that's kind of the clearest, obvious thing that you can look to is to be like, okay, there clearly is, you know, something, something wrong here and something that needs to change. And, you know, whatever, you can talk semantics in terms of the timeline as to what day it was and this and that, but it's like, you know, the texts are there and it's like, it's pretty obvious that, you know, there's something going on that it's like, okay, how does Bill Belichick first have inside information to this? And, you know, second of all, why are they congratulating or why is he, or why is Brian Dable you know, supposed wise, you know, and I know it's confusing because Bill Belichick thinks that he's texting Brian Dable, but it's like, you know, why does Dable have this information or, you know, Flores have this information that, you know, they are basically giving, you know, Dable the job before Brian Flores gets a chance to, you know, talk about his, you know, qualifications. And it doesn't really matter, but I do believe that Brian Flores is more qualified than, uh, Brian Dable. I don't really want to talk about, you know, comparing careers, but I'm sorry, there's one guy that's way more qualified than the other guy. I'm not trying to demean Brian Dable because I think he could be a good coach, but he doesn't have any experience coaching a team. And uh, I don't know, the Giants aren't exactly uh, a team that I think a lot of people are feeling super excited about. But um, you know, that doesn't really matter, I guess, but it just is kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's depressing, you know, that someone like Brian Flores, who is probably one of the most qualified head coaching candidates, you know, is not exactly being treated fairly and he's not the only one, you know, and I think that he made that clear when he went on, uh, wake up last week on ESPN, you know, making it sound or saying that it's not about him, that it's, about, you know, other people, other candidates that haven't gotten, haven't gotten the opportunities. And I think that, you know, even he said, this is an issue that goes larger than just the NFL. And, you know, one of the other interesting points that he made was, you know, the rest of the world looks at the NFL as kind of a, not like a company to look up to, because it's not really the right, that's not really the right way that he said it. But it was like the NFL is such a huge company and is a large, has a large looming presence, you know, over, over other businesses, you know, in, in the United States and in the world. And I think that, you know, if the NFL is willing to change its 
hiring practices that perhaps there are other companies in the world that might change their, you know, hiring practices because obviously, you know, there is a, a lack of, you know, black owners, black uh, executives and things like that in not only the NFL, but in other businesses or other industries as well. So, you know, it's just uh, obviously we all know about the, the different things that are in the lawsuit. You know, you can read the lawsuit if you'd like, but um, it just is it's unfortunate that, you know, this is still happening. And I just hope that, you know, as much as, you know, Coach Flores is also hoping that there can be change here, you know, that there can be more of a level playing field and, and a fair playing field. And that's really all that's being asked, I think. Um, I will just say, you know, the NFL is uh, just, you know, we all know that the league is just, has had its issues in the past. And I don't know, it just is, is wild to me. And I don't know if people are talking, people have talked about this, but it's wild to me that the NFL comes out with this statement and says, you know, the things that Brian Flores is alleging are without merit. But then you have Roger Goodell coming out and saying that, you know, the league's going to reevaluate these guidelines and acknowledge that their results of their efforts to promote diversity within, with respect to head coaches has been unacceptable. But it's like, I mean, I don't understand how you can, how the league can come out with that statement and saying that these things are without merit, but then say that they're going to you know, trying to fix these things. So, you know, I don't know. It's just kind of embarrassing. You know, it's it's really embarrassing um, for the league. And I think it's about time that this manner or that this, you know, issue has come to light. And I think Coach Floor is, you know, coming to the coming to the front and being like, this needs to be addressed, you know, and this needs to be changed. So I think that it's uh, it's good on him, you know, good for him to be able to, you know, come in and be like, this is an issue, this needs to be solved, I don't care if it costs me my career. Um, it's just pretty remarkable what, 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 what he's willing to do uh, for this for this game that I think needs serious change, you know, when it comes to getting diversity in terms of our head coaches. Um, so I think that that's probably it for that. I'm just going through some other things here. The U.S. men's national team uh, with a 3 nothing win over Honduras last week to close out their qualifying window. Uh, they are in pretty good shape here. So with three games left, um, Canada and the United States and Mexico in the uh, lead for the three spots in the World, World Cup. Panama is currently in fourth place. Uh, Canada, 25 points. U.S. and Mexico with 21. And then Panama with 17. So... Obviously, top three teams make the World Cup. The fourth team goes to um, an intercontinental playoff. So uh, the U.S., I think, uh, in pretty good shape here. You know, I think in, um, you know, going into these last three games in March, which are not going to be easy, you know, they got to go on the road to Mexico, on the road to Costa Rica. They don't, cause they don't usually do well there, and they have a home match against Panama. So, um you know, three pretty tough games, but I think if the U.S. can win one of these games, they'll be fine. Um, obviously, the big one against Mexico, March 24th, um, on the road, which will be a wild game if the U.S. can, if the, if the U.S. can win this game, you know, I think they're pretty much assured a spot in. Um, but it'll be, it was good to see U.S. bounce back after the uh, loss to Canada. It was a tough game, but they came back 
got a couple goals, played really, really well. So that's some good news there. Um, also some revolution news. Josie Altador is uh, signing with the revolution. So um, that's pretty interesting. The revs are bringing him in as kind of, they're not sure about uh, Adam Buchs's future, I think, according to, to some people. Um, but it's a, it's a curious move. You know, Josie obviously is on the older side. You know, he's 32, but uh, the Revs have a, a roster that I think is built to compete now. So I don't think it's a terrible move, but I'm curious to see what type of skill he still has. You know, he's not had a great season the last two years. I think only seven goals in the last two years combined. But obviously we know all about his career um, on the U.S. men's national team, but also in the MLS. So I think it's a solid signing. You know, I'm going to be curious to see, you know, what this team looks like once the season starts, which uh, is not is not too long in the future. I think it's just a couple of weeks. So curious to see how that plays out. But U.S. men in a good position to qualify for the World Cup in November. So we will get to men's college basketball here. Rankings for uh, this week just came out a couple hours ago. Auburn and Gonzaga still on top of the AP poll. Purdue into the top three. And Arizona into the top five. They are at number four. And Kentucky at number five. So some risers here this week. Texas Tech into the top ten. Uh, Providence up to 11th in the country. Um, Illinois up to 13th. Marquette up to 18. And then some fallers this week. Uh, UConn fell back to 24. UCLA falling all the way out of the top 10 after their triple OT loss on the road to Arizona State. They dropped to number 12. Uh, So some games tonight, Virginia against 7th-ranked Duke. Uh, Arizona taking on the aforementioned Arizona State. Um, And then 8th-ranked Kansas and 20th-ranked Texas. And then some games tomorrow. Number 1 Auburn back in action against Arkansas. They're 18-5, 18th-ranked Marquette, 24th-ranked UConn, Wisconsin, and Michigan State. Both of those teams ranked. And then Illinois-Purdue, both of those teams are ranked as well. So staying with the college theme, uh, the uh, men's beanpot gets underway at TD Garden tonight. Obviously, if you are a... Obviously, if you're a Boston hockey fan, you will enjoy this. It's always a fun tournament to watch. Um, BU and Harvard get it going t- this afternoon at 5, and then BC and Northeastern will play at 8 o'clock. And then the championship next Monday, and the consolation also next Monday. Uh, the women's bean pot also. We have the final tomorrow. Harvard and BC in the championship. That's tomorrow at 7.30. And then BU and Northeastern in the consolation at 4 o'clock. Um, and then before we let you guys go, we're going to talk little bit about the Olympics, get to hockey for both the men and the women. The women are off to an unbelievable start. I kind of can't believe uh, how could how good they've been, you know, opening up the Olympics, you know, 5-2 against Finland in their first game, 5-0 against Russia, um, and then 8-0 against Switzerland yesterday. So uh, Team USA is dominating and who do they get tonight at 11 o'clock? Well, it's Canada, uh, U.S. and Canada. It's always an awesome, awesome matchup to watch uh, when the women go at it. You know, it's such a, uh, you know, a rivalry as old as time, as they say. 
um, these games are always awesome, and it doesn't matter if these games don't mean anything. You know, essentially, these this game does not mean anything because I think both of these teams are already through to the, the knockout round, but, I mean, it's it doesn't matter if these two teams are playing for a game that means nothing. It's um, such a treat to watch, so if you're up that late, definitely tune in me myself i'm definitely going to watch the re-air uh, tomorrow afternoon um, but it's always a treat to be able to watch those two teams and you know that they will meet again at some point likely in the cold medal game but um yeah i know i sound giddy with excitement it's always uh it's always a treat to be able to watch the two teams play uh not fans of each other not really at all but uh, it's great hockey you know familiarity breeds contempt as uh, jack edwards likes to say you know it's a uh, Two teams that are so familiar with each other that, you know, it's uh, they're competing constantly, you know, in world championships, in the Olympics. You've seen some unbelievable games. Team USA obviously winning in the shootout in 2018. Canada winning in 2014 after overcoming a two-goal deficit in the third. So you're going to see some wild, wild action tonight. But obviously it is uh, the last of the group stage, so we will see. Probably we'll see them play again at some point. So that will definitely be a must watch. Um, and then the men's tournament gets underway, or men's hockey, excuse me, gets underway on Wednesday morning. Uh, Team USA starts their um, preliminary round against Canada Thursday at 8 o'clock. And then they will play, then they will play Canada late on Friday night, and then they will play their last group stage game against uh, Germany at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, Super Bowl Sunday. So if you want to get up early, watch some Super Bowl Sunday. Um, definitely won't stop you. You know, obviously, the tough thing about the men's tournament is no NHL players, so it, uh, you know, takes a little bit of air out of the tournament. But, hey, it's always fun to watch, you know, Olympic hockey. You know, I don't really care who's playing. Um, but obviously without the NHL players, it makes it a little bit, you know, tougher to watch because you're not seeing the best of the best, but you are seeing some really good young players that will compete. Uh, Maddie Beniers, I think obviously is the, uh, guy to keep your eye on 19 years old, the second pick in the NHL draft or in, in, the, in the NHL entry draft last season. Uh, property of the Seattle Kraken, so it'd be very neat to see him compete. Uh, Jake Sanderson is also playing. He was a top five pick in that draft as well. Plenty of uh, Massachusetts connections. Uh, David Quinn will coach the team. He obviously was the head coach for BU for a number of years, um, and then the head coach for the Rangers for a couple of years. Um, some other names that you got might recognize, Stephen Kampfer, Obviously, a former Bruin, he is on the roster. David Warsawski, if you remember him from back in the day, he played in a couple games for the Bruins, uh, so he will be appearing. Kenny Agostino also had a cup of coffee with the Bruins a couple years ago, played some preseason games. He is on this team. Uh, Mark McLaughlin, uh, Sean Farrell, Drew Hellison, some uh, local uh, Hockey East players that will be competing here, so... It'll be, it'll be interesting, you know, I'm not sure about Team USA, you know, or other countries to ex what to expect without the NHL players, but I would expect Team USA does uh, fairly well. So 
I think that it will be a fun tournament, you know, and then obviously you got the, got the women's game tonight against Canada. That will be a lot of fun. So um, I just want to say, you know, watching the Olympics is always a treat, you know, being able to see some of the best athletes in the world, you know, compete to the best of their ability. It's honestly, it's jaw dropping. Some of the things that they're able to do, I was watching some um, freestyle skiing last night and it's like the, I'm just in awe of the ability that some of these people have to be able to, you know, do tricks in the air like that or watching skiing, you know, the speed that they're able to get up to and be able to control themselves. It's, it's insane, you know, being able to watch, you know, some of these events and, and really being blown away at the ability of some of these people. And, you know, I know that all the people that win medals are the ones that are, you know, remembered and thought of as the elite, but it's like, hey, even getting to the Olympics is an, is an incredible accomplishment. Um, so obviously everyone has their events that they enjoy at the, at the Olympics. I'll be, you know, enjoying the hockey. Everyone will have their own thing. I remember when, you know, curling was a thing a number of years back um, that kind of, you know, caught the world by storm, but, uh, it's always, it's always fun watching the Olympics. Uh, there's always some, there's really just seems like there's always an event for, for someone. So I uh, hope everyone is enjoying that and, uh, good luck to the U S women tonight against Canada. So, um, hopefully everyone has a good rest of your week. We will talk to you guys on guest Friday. Really looking forward to conversation with Tyler and I'll get, uh, I get pretty fun looking forward to it. So uh, as always, you can follow our socials on uh, Twitter and on Facebook, and you can listen on Spotify and Apple podcasts. All right, everyone have a great week.